LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Malcolm Torrey, who joins us to discuss his new book, Money for Everyone why we need a citizen's income. Due to government cuts, the benefits system in the UK is currently a hot topic. In this timely book, a citizen's income, sometimes called a basic income, is defined as an unconditional, non-withdrawable income for every individual as a right of citizenship. Money for Everyone is the first book for over a decade to analyse the social, economic and labour market advantages of a citizen's income. It demonstrates that it would be simple and cheap to administer, would reduce inequality, enhance individual freedom, and would be good for the economy, social cohesion, families, and the employment market. The book also contains international comparisons and links with broader issues around the meaning of poverty and inequality, making a valuable contribution to the debate around benefits. Whether you're a capitalist, socialist, somewhere in between, or even beyond, You may believe the very idea of a citizen's income to be variously unworkable, unaffordable, unethical, or some combination thereof. However, in a world of growing poverty and inequality, spiralling military spending, banks too big to fail, and the Ponzi scheme of debt-based fiat currency, it is perhaps worth looking again at how we could radically improve the lot of the many through more inventive and imaginative economic systems. Hello and welcome, Malcolm, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. Now, Malcolm, today we're going to discuss uh, your new book, which is entitled Money for Everyone, Why We Need a Citizen's Income. Perhaps you could just start us off by, for people who don't know, just tell us briefly what a citizen's income actually is. A citizen's income is an unconditional, non-withdrawable income for every individual as a right of citizenship. Um, I'll explain all those terms. Unconditional means everybody gets it without any conditions whatsoever. So whatever you're earning, whatever your family structure, uh, whatever your assets, whatever, you receive exactly the same amount of money. There'd be different amounts for different age groups. But apart from that, it would be completely unconditional and non-withdrawable means that if you earn some extra money, it doesn't get taken away from you. Means-tested benefits, of course, are taken away from you as your income rises, but a citizen's income would not be. A citizen's income is for every individual. That means it's for an individual. It's based on the individual as the claimant unit. And so whether you are in a family or whether you live on your own, whether you have a spouse or a partner, um, it makes absolutely no difference to how much citizen's income you get. It's as simple as that. Now, this is not a new idea as such for people who are maybe coming to this for the first time. This, this idea does have quite some history behind it. Um, the idea has a history behind it. And to some extent, the actuality has a history. Um, in the UK, we have child benefit. Uh, a benefit is paid for every child living in this country who has a right to, to reside here. And whilst different amounts are paid for the first child of a family from the other children in the family, every first child in the family gets exactly the same amount, however much their parents are earning, whatever kind of family they're in. And every second, third, fourth and so on child in a family gets exactly the same amount of money as every other second, third or fourth child of a family. Uh, We also have a another universal benefit in this country, which is not a cash one, and that's our National Health Service. It's unconditional. It's for absolutely everybody who has a right to be here. 
it is uh, non-withdrawable. That is, you don't start paying for it if your earned income goes up and so on. So there are some, some real practical examples of universal benefits like a citizen's income. The idea goes way back to Thomas Paine. And the, he quite rightly said that the earth belongs to everyone. He didn't put it quite like that. But that's what he meant. And you'll find his quotes in my book. He, he said the, the, the earth belongs to everyone. It happens that certain people occupy bits of the land and have managed to uh, gather for themselves the means of production. Um, but that means that they should be providing for everyone who's been deprived of their right to their share of the products of the earth. And so he recommended a citizen's income, a payment for everybody. The idea is every now and then come back onto the agenda as time's gone on. Um, and so we, we, we would very much like to see the idea stay way up the, the agenda, public agenda now. And the, the book is a means for, for doing that, we hope, for helping that to happen. Walter Van Trier, a historian of the idea, showed that once every generation or so, the idea emerges as if from nowhere and as if anew. Um, and about 30 years ago, some of us set up the Basic Income Research Group, now the Citizens Income Trust, uh, to promote debate on a citizen's income so that uh, when the, the idea re-emerged the following generation, it, it would have a basis on which to build. And the book that's about to come out is based on a great deal of work that the Citizens Income Trust has done over that period. Um, yes, it, it, the idea goes, goes way back and every now and then it's come back onto the agenda. The book has a, has a chapter on attempts at legislating a citizen's income in this country. Um, there have been some very useful similar uh, financial provisions similar to a citizen's income. In Alaska, the oil uh, revenues, uh, the royalties on the oil revenues, have been put into a fund over many years, a permanent fund. And the dividend on that fund, part of it is paid to every citizen of Alaska equally. It's not strictly speaking a citizen's income because it's not a regular payment. That is, it's not weekly or monthly. Uh, it's an annual payment. And also, it's not, not reliable. It's not predictable because it is the dividend of a permanent investment fund, which means that recently it's gone down as the dividends of all kinds of investments have gone down. But what it has uh, achieved is it's enabled us to understand some of the effects that a citizen's income would have from being the most unequal state in Alaska, in the United States. Alaska is now the most equal state. It is uh, the, the gap between the highest and the lowest earners is the, the, the lowest there is in the states. And that's largely due to the equal dividend that's paid to every citizen once a year. It's, the, the dividend has also created jobs. Uh, this is not surprising. If you increase the incomes of those who are poorest in society, then jobs will, the number of jobs will increase because the poorer members of a society are more likely to spend additional income on goods and services locally than are people whose incomes increase if they are in the upper earning deciles of a population. And we have seen that effect in Alaska. Uh, jobs have been created. A really interesting example recently has been Iran. The Iranian government decided that it was going to abolish subsidies on basic um, food and, and other products, on petrol as well, because the, the large subsidies that were being paid to enable the population of Iran to obtain these goods quite cheaply meant that the prices of food and petrol were well below market values. And so there was a lot of cross-border uh, trade. Um, well, not exactly trade. There was a lot of cross-border smuggling. Um, and people were coming into Iran and buying petrol at very low prices and then taking it elsewhere, which, of course, was not benefiting Iranian people. So the government was planning to abolish the subsidies and therefore legislated for a means-tested benefit for the poor so that their 
uh, incomes would be protected and they'd be able to pay the higher prices. What then happened was that the government abolished the subsidies more quickly than they'd intended. And the administrative system didn't cope with the means-tested benefit. And so the government simply paid it to everybody at the same rate. It's not exactly a citizen's income in one sense, in that the entire household citizen's income is paid to the head of the household, as you might expect in Iran. But the amounts are based on the individual. So two people living together receive twice what an individual would receive. So in that respect, it is a citizen's income. And we watch with interest how that payment evolves and the effects that it will have. It would be nice to be able to have more independent research of the tax benefit system in Iran to see how effective the citizen's income is. Now, before we talk about the global financial situation, it's worth kind of mentioning, I suppose, that the philosophical background to all this, as you alluded to mentioning Thomas Paine, is that there was a time, a long time ago, when man, humans, were like the rest of the creatures on the earth. That is to say that they didn't pay money to live on the earth. Uh, but, of course, there was a, an appropriation, some would say misappropriation of the commons. And that's really the underpinning of all this is that, you know, that the the earth was kind of penned off, as it were, you know, by groups over the, over the, I mean, this is a, the entire stretch of human history we have to look back across, I suppose. But the situation is, is where we've arrived at today is that humans are sort of unique in that respect um, on this planet. Well, that's absolutely true. And that was the, the situation which Thomas Paine was writing when there was an increase in the amount of um, enclosure both enclosure of land and enclosure of productive capacity. Um, and uh, a few people found that they had the means of production in their hands and other people had to sell their labour in order to make a living. So, yes, the, the, that is a process that's gone on and has accelerated since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, uh, a citizen's income is a highly appropriate mechanism in those circumstances. For It doesn't exactly return us to the situation we were in, but it would return us to some of the effects of the previous situation. That is, it would begin to share the value of the, the product of the earth, of the, the resources that the earth offers to us. Now, why this idea is particularly pertinent, and maybe it's coming to the fore again, is because globally, and certainly in all those sort of Western industrialized countries, we have growing inequality and poverty. Um, there's great economic security, uh, social cohesion is breaking down, and work patterns um, are shifting. The employment market is, is changing, and those changes are looking to be permanent in some ways and households and relationships uh, are much more diverse and complex than they used to be and both work and relationships are more in flux and the benefit system certainly we can say in many European countries here in the UK certainly in the US it's kind of unfit for its purpose if it was ever fit in fact. Um, in, in the UK we are at the moment running a system that was last uh, restructured during the Second World War. Um, the world has certainly changed a great deal since the Second World War. When Beveridge wrote his report and published it in 1942, which set up our current contributory benefits and means-tested benefits, the vast majority of families were headed by a full-time male earner, or at least they were going to be after the war was over. There would be a wife who, who may be employed, often part-time, um, but was on a lower wage generally than the man of the household. And that family was likely to be a fairly stable unit um, from uh, for, for decades. The labour market in which the male breadwinner um, was located also tended to have a great deal of stability about it. My grandfather uh, worked for the same engineering company, because Armstrong, on the south bank of the Thames, uh, from one end of his working life at 14 to the other when he retired. Um, uh, and that was a normal a normal experience then. Uh, my father had a relatively small number of employ employers, all in exactly the same field. They were, he was in local government. It's a different world now. The vast majority of people, whether in 
manual or in administrative or professional uh, roles will often go through a variety of different employment patterns and employers. And our families uh, may well be restructured every now and then much more frequently than they have been in the past. And so a, a, a scheme designed for a stable labour market and a stable family structure is not likely to be as useful now as it was then, even if it was entirely accurate then in its presuppositions, which it, it wasn't really. Now, there's various ways that a citizen's income could be structured, but uh, do you think it would be, is it best if it is providing enough for people to live on, even in a subsistence manner? I'm not sure there's a, a, a best to discuss uh, uh, at the beginning of that debate, in the sense that um, if there was going to be a citizen's income established, you need to look at the feasible ways of doing that, before you then discuss what might be the best amount to pay to people in the end. In this country, if we were going to have a citizen's income, it's fairly likely that it would have to start as a rearrangement of our present tax and benefit system. Uh, it's very difficult to start from scratch because we are where we are. So it, you have to say, how would we be able to adapt the system we've got now so that it ends up based on a citizen's income? The answer to that question is if you turn our tax allowances into a citizen's income, into a cash payment for everybody who's earning, then they will be in exactly the same position financially as they are now. Let's suppose that you have you are earning and you have a tax allowance. What that means is that there is a certain amount of your earned income on which you are not taxed. That's worth some money to you. And let's take a fictitious example, just because the figures are easy. Let's suppose you had a tax allowance of £4,000 once each year, and that the tax rate happened to be 25%. Then you've got £4,000 that you're earning on which you are not taxed. That's worth to you £1,000. Uh, let's suppose that instead of that situation, you were taxed on all of your earnings. What you would then happen, and you were then given a £1,000 cash payment each year, you'd be in exactly the same position as you are now. So to change people's tax allowances into a cash payment would be a relatively simple administrative change. At the same time, if means-tested and contributory benefits were turned into unconditional benefits, you could do that simply by removing the earnings rules on them. Then again, you would establish a universal, uh, unconditional, non-withdrawable income for that group. And uh, we therefore be relatively simple by those two methods and then filling in the gaps to pay a citizen's income to every citizen of this country. That would determine, though, how much you're paying, because how much you're paying would end up based largely on the current level of the tax allowance and the current levels of means-tested benefits and the particular schemes that we have costed. And we've got another one about to come out in a booklet we're publishing later this month are based on, on that idea that we turn tax allowances and means-tested benefits into cash payments. And that means, and, and the, the, the recent calculations we've done on a scheme of that nature suggests that about £70 a week is what will be paid to a working age adult. Now, many people, when they come to this basic idea for the first time, they want to dismiss it as some sort of utopian folly. But really, we could perhaps ask the question, this is what I certainly did when I first got to grips with it intellectually, was was why not? You know, we spend untold billions, even trillions on bank bailouts and on war. We always seem to be able to find the money for those things from somewhere. And I understand some of the economic arguments have to be taken into account in terms of like, you know, the amount of money that we create and where that comes from and where it goes to in the system and the, all the side effects. But essentially, I think it is time to say why not and to, and to look at this seriously, which, of course, is you know what you're advocating that we do. We don't even have to ask that question. It's perfectly feasible to establish a citizen's income without spending any extra money. It would, we don't need to spend uh, extra public money in order to establish it if we do it by reducing tax allowances and means-tested and contributory benefits. In many ways, a citizen's income is simply 
a few administrative changes. Of course, it would also be a major change in the way in which we organise the income maintenance of our entire population. It is a strange idea in that respect. It is both of those, a small administrative change and a radical new idea. And it wouldn't cost anything. That's the important point about it. Um, and all the schemes that we have researched have been revenue neutral, by which we mean it won't cost anything extra. So we don't even have to ask the question, should we spend any extra money on it? It's remarkable, actually, when you look at the, the benefit system that we have, as I say, in lots of different countries, but talking specifically here about the UK, it's immensely complex and the administration costs are astronomical and the divisive means testing as you point out, is actually incredibly inefficient and it's also divisive. And of course, the system is open to fraud, uh, much of which is not really through uh, criminal intent, but just desperate people trying to make ends meet. And the citizens' income addresses um, a lot of these issues. Uh, it certainly does, yes. It, it, it is very wasteful, the way that we spend money on administering means tests. Uh, if we... If you run, as we do in this country, a progressive tax system and a benefit system that is largely means tested, then we are constantly doing the same job twice. Somebody on uh, what we call tax credits, that is a means tested benefit for people in work, uh, if they are also paying income tax, then they are having their uh, the amounts that they pay to and receive from the government uh, calculated twice. It does seem a rather waste of effort. We are running in this country two completely separate systems for evaluating people's incomes and therefore what they should receive from or give to the government. Why do we not simply run a single system? If all we did was run a progressive tax system and then gave to every citizen a citizen's income, an unconditional, non-withdrawable benefit, then uh, we would be in exactly the same position as we are now, and uh, we would be saving ourselves vast sums in administrative costs. Now, as we have to admit, there would still be some residual means-tested benefits. The reason for that is that um, housing costs different amounts of money in different parts of the country. Nobody has yet solved that problem. It's a problem that the current benefit system hasn't solved. Um, it's not a problem that is in any sense the fault of a citizen's income. Nobody should expect the citizen's income scheme to solve it either. Um, it is a big problem all on its own, which at the moment we try to solve. Well, we don't really solve it, but we patch it up by paying a means-tested housing benefit in places where housing is expensive. And so that may unfortunately have to continue until a broader solution is found to the problems of housing costs. Now, politicians are constantly talking about the need to reform the benefit system. But it's clear that if you look at the history of our benefit system, you know, it's, it's gradual evolution. It's really a history of, of tinkering at the edges quite often and also constant change, not just from administration to administration, but even during the lifetime of one parliament that can be multiple changes to the system which just none of which really addresses the underlying problems and it's clear that some sort of uh, radical change is required. Uh, we've seen some recent, um, the recent change which is typical of um, the way in which politicians tend to change the system. The, the universal credit which we're about to see implemented in pilot projects and then it will be rolled out across the country uh, is an attempt to solve a particular problem. Uh, if somebody is employed for less than 16 hours a week at the moment, then they will be receiving job uh, income support, or job seekers allowance. And if they are employed for over 16 hours a week, then they will be receiving what we call tax credits. If somebody on 15 hours employment uh, then adds two hours to their employment total, then the, the administration of their family budget is thrown into chaos because they have to come off one set of means-tested benefits and go on to another. Now, the universal credit, when it happens, will put that right. However, uh, in order to operate universal 
credit, the uh, a person's employer will need to pass regular accurate information on what they're paid to the uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs uh, and to their computer. And that computer will need to pass accurate, timely information to the Department for Work and Pensions computer so that the claimant's uh, proper amount of universal credit can be paid into their bank account. There are multiple problems involved in that administrative process. The, the Department for Work and Pensions and its universal credit scheme will function on a household basis. The uh, employer and the uh, Majesty's Revenue and Customs function on the basis of the individual as the taxpayer. So already there is an administrative, serious administrative complexity in the system. People's employers change regularly nowadays, as we've already discussed. And so, uh, again, universal credit is being created on the basis of presuppositions which no longer apply. It's being created uh, on the presupposition that our employment patterns are relatively stable and that our family patterns are relatively stable. It is no longer the case. Uh, in the mid-70s, I was working for the Department of Social Security in Brixton Supplementary Benefit Offices. And uh, I realised then just how inappropriate the benefit system that we were op operating was to the lives of many people living in Brixton uh, whose family and employment patterns were nowhere near what was presupposed by the benefit system that they were on. And exactly the same is true and even more true now. So whilst universal credit will tackle one particular problem of the benefit system, it has stoked up for the administrative processes uh, some uh, multiple additional problems. And this seems to be what generally happens, that a single problem in the benefits or tax system is tackled in isolation without the consequences for elsewhere in the system being properly examined. Another recent example is the attempt to means test child benefit. That failed. We still do have a universal child benefit because it dawned on the uh, administrators that uh, means testing it in relation to uh, the, the way we, we run our tax and benefit system now wasn't going to be a possibility because there is no database of who's living with whom and who's receiving uh, and who's living with somebody receiving child benefit. So what's happened is that the value of child benefit for high rate taxpayers is being extracted from them through the tax system, adding another complexity to an already very complex income tax system. If you tamper with one part of a complex system, then there will be consequences in other parts of it. And the only answer to that in a more complex world is to radically simplify the system that we're running. The only way of doing that is a citizen's income. Some of the economic and social changes that have been coming along over the last few decades have kind of really accelerated since the global financial crisis of 07-08. And certainly here in the UK, one of the effects has been to put the, you know, as you say, this overly complex not really fit for purpose benefit system under extreme pressure. And we've seen certainly the headlines for most of this year uh, in the press have been dominated by a lot of um, documenting this and suggesting uh, possible you know, solutions to it. But we don't seem to be much further forward, really. We're not much further forward. And uh, only today we've heard that Ed Balls says that when if Labour gets back into power, then they want to to stop the the wealthier pensioners receiving the winter fuel payment. It's another uh, tampering with one element of a system which will have complex, which will impose new complexities elsewhere. The winter fuel payment, which goes once a year to everyone over retirement age in this country, is an incredibly simple benefit. It means that everybody gets it. If you want to uh, remove its value, from those who are earning quite a lot of money, uh, then you have two uh, routes available to you. Either you can means test the benefit itself, which will be extremely expensive to do administratively. I suspect they won't, um, because the savings envisaged 
for a uh, hundred million pounds, which is a very small amount of money compared with the rest of the benefit system. The other option, which is the option that the Chancellor has taken with child benefit now, is for is to in, require those uh, who are paying higher rates income tax to declare the fact that they are receiving a winter fuel payment and the, the value will be uh, extracted through the tax system, adding yet another complexity to the tax system for very little benefit indeed. Yes, we see the process go on. The only answer is the citizen's income. And all of what you've just mentioned reminds us that a lot of the debate around this is uh, that basically benefits are not fair. Basically, some people feeling that they're not getting enough, they're not being supported. A lot of other people, um, perhaps from quite often an ill-informed point of view, um, accusing other people of, you know, living off the state and being spongers, all the rest of it that we see in the media. And the idea of a citizen's income really sort of levels that out and it defuses the argument in many ways. Unfortunately, it doesn't entirely defuse the argument. Um, I wish that it did. Um, One of the the psychological issues that faces anybody who advocates a citizen's income uh, is the argument, well, you can't pay people for doing nothing. Because if we gave to everybody a citizen's income, then there are some people who might decide that they are going to live very cheaply on that and they will do nothing. But my answer to that, uh, which you'll find in the book, is that we are already paying people to do nothing if that's what they choose to do. And we're doing it very badly. What we're doing at the moment is paying people means-tested benefits in such a way that if they earn additional income, then they have most of it taken away from them. There are numerous households in this country who, who, if they earn an additional pound, receive only 15p of it after their benefits have been withdrawn. And there are hundreds of thousands of of households uh, which uh, receive only 5p benefit of every extra pound that they earn. The Department for Work and Pensions used to publish sets of tables which showed just how much was being withdrawn from different kinds of households. They've stopped publishing those tables, which is a real shame, because it's now far less obvious to anybody who wants to look just how much is being withdrawn from people as their incomes rise. And if you are uh, thinking of entering employment, or you are in employment and thinking about, well, maybe I should try to increase my earned income for the benefit of my family. And you will only receive 5 or 15p benefit for every extra pound you earn. It really isn't much of an incentive. There is another disincentive too, of course, that uh, if, as things stand at the moment, you earn additional income, then that has to be declared to the benefits authorities. And not only will you receive less benefit, but your your family budget may be thrown into a certain amount of chaos as your benefits are recalculated. It's such changes which result in tax credit overpayments to families which they're then required to pay back when they haven't got the money anymore. One of the most serious issues facing our means-tested benefit system at the moment. Now, there's a Machiavellian wrinkle in all of this which may not occur to most people uh, on, on first examination, and that's that some of the changes you're um, advocating, whether they would be implemented or not, could be intimately connected with the effect that it might have on the number of civil servants. Now, explain that one. At the moment, um, every uh, change that we're seeing is likely to increase the number of civil servants. If you want to extract the value of child benefit from high-rate taxpayers, then uh, then we'll need more civil servants to manage the tax system. The same will occur if Ed Balls um, decides to extract the value of the winter fuel allowance from high-rate taxpayers. It would be difficult to... Ex- we really can't expect the heads of departments to see their own departments fall in number of employees or the number of functions that they're undertaking. It is a natural human instinct. Uh, to want to benefit the department that one's working for if if you're a civil servant. Uh, Therefore, we're likely to see uh, uh, civil servants at senior levels 
um, briefing ministers uh, positively in relation to changes that will increase the number of civil servants and maybe negatively in relation to the number uh, to, to, to possible changes that might reduce the number of civil servants. Um, a piece of research that I've done on the history of the benefit system in the UK in, during the last century, and which is recorded in the book, shows that um, where uh, changes, uh, proposed changes, would have uh, reduced the number of civil servants, they have not occurred. Where proposed changes have re increased the number of civil servants, then they have occurred. It does actually seem to be as simple as that if you look back across the history of reform proposals. This isn't surprising. We are about to see a change in the pension system, a very useful change. Stephen Webb, the Minister for Pensions, understands the system very well. He's an expert in tax and benefit systems. And uh, he is establishing a new single tier state's pension. That's what's in the legislation that's now been published. We very much hope that will happen. Uh, it will mean that anyone in this country with a full national insurance contribution record will receive an unconditional non-withdrawable pension of a reasonable amount of money and up to the amount that people now receive if they're on means-tested pension credit. Uh, wisely, Stephen Webb is, is maintaining national insurance contribution records and is reducing the single-tier state pension for those who do not have full contribution records. His new scheme uh, will leave a number of civil servants administering state pensions very much as it is now. Uh, we are unlikely to see anybody in the relevant departments briefing against it. So it is a, a change that's very likely to happen, a very useful change too, because it will get us somewhere nearer to a citizen's pension, uh, an unconditional non-withdrawable income for every individual over retirement age. Thinking of the EU here as an economic block, we have issues of economic migration occurring somewhat. That's a contentious topic. And also beyond the EU, we have the issue of illegal immigration. Do you think that the citizens' income uh, would affect either of those areas positively or negatively? I don't see why it should have any effect at all. At the moment, um, people who come here legally to work from the EU uh, receive benefits as other people in this country do. There's, there's an argument going on at the moment between the UK's government and the European Commission over the conditions uh, imposed on uh, benefits conditions imposed on European workers. Um, it is a relatively small, uh, there's a relatively small difference between them. Um, and it's largely uh, a matter of the, the UK's government imposing a condition that EU, uh, European Union workers can easily meet. So it's largely an abstract issue. And so the situation stands that if somebody comes here from a European Union country to work, they receive benefits in the same way, pretty much the same way as people who live here anyway. A citizen's income would not change that. We'd be in exactly the same position. Um, anybody who came here would receive a citizen's income. And equally, anybody who has the right to be here from anywhere in the world would receive a citizen's income too. At the moment, of course, there are debates as to who should receive what, as to who has a right to live here. These are separate debates. They are, they are not a debate directly connected with the citizen's income. It's a problem that needs to be solved, and uh, we would all like it to be solved. The one change which a citizen's income would make is that it would force the definition of citizen to be clarified. Because if you're going to call it a citizen's income, then it will be paid to citizens and we need to know who our citizens are. It would also have an effect the other way. If we are paying to groups of people who live here a citizen's income, then it provides them with an element of citizenship. And so we are, if we had a citizen's income, we would first of all need to achieve clarity 
as to who has a right to be here and to call themselves a citizen. And by doing, by paying them a citizen's income, we would embed a genuinely felt citizenship in each of our citizens. Um, so there would be effects, um, but not in terms of who received benefits or not. So it's not an issue that ought to affect the debate about whether we established a citizen's income or not. A particularly interesting proposal made to us in the early 1990s by James Dickens MP was that if we establish a citizen's income, then the receipt of it should be based on the electoral register. That is, anybody on the electoral register should receive the citizen's income. It would be a very useful administrative process. His particular interest is that if we did that, then we would align citizenship with the electoral register, um, which would have very positive benefits, and particularly uh, a particularly important benefit is it would make sure it would ensure the that the electoral register was much more accurate, because people would want to be accurately on it in order to receive their citizens' income, which would improve the democracy of our country. There is a great deal of non-registration at the moment, and uh, uh, the administration of the citizens' income was combined with the electoral register, then uh, we would see a lot more registration and a lot more people voting, which can only be a good thing. But that is a separate issue. Uh, a citizen's income is for every citizen. It's a right of citizenship. It's an income basis on which every citizen can build. It would be a statement that we all belong together in this country, that we are a citizenship. We are a citizenry. Um, and it would therefore have enormous benefits for social cohesion. There's not a lot at the moment in our public policy that holds us together in that way. A child benefit holds every family with children in the same system, thus improving social cohesion. Um, the National Health Service is um, an enormous uh, benefit to us in relation to the social cohesion that it generates and the citizens income would have some very similar effects. Now considering the uh, lower end of the job market and those who perhaps need to top up their income with benefits, what might the effect be um, if there was a citizen's income on companies who employ, some would say exploit lower paid workers, if there wasn't so much of a pool of desperate people seeking uh, low paid jobs? Um, there would still be people looking for low-wage jobs. A citizen's income at, at any uh, currently affordable level would be unlikely to provide every family with sufficient to live on. Therefore, people will need to look for earned income and are actually more likely to do so. Because at the moment, if somebody's on means-tested benefits, uh, there's not much of an incentive to improve your earned income if you're only going to get 15p uh, out of every extra pound that you earn as your benefits are withdrawn. So what we would see if we had a citizen's income was more individuals and households looking to improve their economic position by earning more. It would be worth their while to earn more and they would therefore be seeking additional training. They would be seeking different jobs. And that's one of the mechanisms which would mean that the low-paid employers, uh, low-paying employers would be likely to have to raise the, the earnings that they pay. Another rather more abstract argument, though one with considerable practical effects, is that at the moment, the way in which we manage our tax and benefits system, it, it does skew the employment market. If the employment market was much more like the classical free market, in which people sold their labor for the value that it had to the employer, then the employment market would be a great deal more efficient for both employee and employer, for companies and public sector organizations, and for the people who work for them. Uh, a citizen's income, because of its simplicity, would make the employment market much more efficient, much more like a genuine free market. This is likely to have a number of effects. It would first of all mean that if you had a very desirable job, you might not be paid as much for it. 
because you're, what the employer had to pay you would no longer have to cover your subsistence income. And because you love doing that job, you might well be wanting to do it, even if you were not paid a vast amount for doing it. Another important effect would be a very undesirable job would be much more refusable because a large part of people's subsistence income would be a secure income floor provided by their citizens' income. Therefore, the most undesirable jobs, um, for the most undesirable jobs, employers would have to raise the amount that they were offering to their employees. An effect of this might well be that more undesirable jobs were automated. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. A parallel process would be people in those jobs seeking additional training, seeking new skills. So they could look for more desirable jobs because it would be more worth their while to do so. So the effects, we're not very sure exactly how those effects will work out over time. Initially, there will be very small effects, of course, as people got used to having a secure income floor once the citizen's income was in payment. But uh, in general, we would be likely to see something much closer to a, a classical free market in labour. This can only be good for our economy. It's got to be good for our society. And the, the benefits of a citizen's income, therefore, run right across the different social issues that we all face. Uh, it would benefit families, it would benefit uh, the employment market, it would benefit employees. And so it's difficult to find arguments against it. Of course, there are some. And one that we do often hear is you shouldn't pay people something for nothing, but we're doing that anyway and we're doing it badly. Uh, another argument is, well, would people work if they received assistance income? The answer, of course, is they'd be actually more likely to because they'd keep more of any additional income than they do now. So everywhere you look, there are arguments for a citizen's income. Now, of course, any income, wherever it comes from, can still be squandered. Um, people can still make bad decisions. We see this uh, in lottery winners, for example, who end up destitute you know, months or at least not very long after winning very large amounts of money. And in that sort of background, that context, that a citizen's income isn't in any way about controlling people's behaviour as such or limiting their freedom? No, not at all. No, a citizen's income would give people more freedom, more freedom to choose their employment pattern, more freedom within their relationships. So no, no, nobody's suggesting, I wouldn't wish to suggest, that we should control what people do with their lives. A citizen's income would give people far more choices to make. Yes, some people will squander what they've got, and that's um, something that some people do, and having a citizen's income wouldn't change that. It wouldn't make it any more likely either. Well, um, as for the notion that you know people wouldn't bother working, I mean, there's a big issue playing out in the background here and has been for decades, and that's the idea of technological unemployment, um, automation, putting people permanently out of work. We just don't need people to do uh, many of the tasks that they were required to do in decades gone by. I mean, I remember back in 1995 reading a book by Jeremy Rifkin, which is called The End of Work. And even there, he was speaking in that about the idea of a social wage as something of a remedy to this uh, predicament. And the changes that he wrote about have only accelerated since then. And in fact, today we find that shifts in technology and automation are moving faster than ever. And there are many other similar changes happening on multiple fronts. Yes, they certainly are. Um, one of the significant changes we're seeing is as as automation increases and as multinational companies manage to control the resources of the earth and the methods of production and these appear to be inevitable processes which can to some extent be controlled by national governments and international agreements but only to some extent uh, we are seeing far more of the profit that comes from production processes ending up with the owners of capital than with the employees um, uh, of those companies. This is putting strain on the, the income tax structure that we use 
to fund the, the benefits and other public services. The recent publicity over the, the tax um, strategies of companies like Google and Apple and Amazon are symptomatic of a serious long-term issue. Um, it will become more difficult to fund benefits and public services out of individuals' earned incomes. Um, and uh, a way internationally if necessary is going to have to be found to fund earned incomes and benefits and public services by other tax methods. Um, that's an inevitable process that's going to have to be tackled at some point anyway, as, as less of the product of the productive processes ends up with labour. Uh, a major problem, as we've seen during the uh, recent financial crisis, is that if not enough of the, the, the value of productive processes ends up with, with individual citizens, then they cannot afford to consume goods and services. And so recession is the result. This will be increasingly the result if more of the value of, uh, of productive processes doesn't end up with public bodies and with individual citizens. A citizen's income um, would help to write this process, would, would help to provide a secure income for every member of our society, enabling people to continue to consume the goods and services that they need. And therefore, it will create a more buoyant and more efficient economy. As for the, uh, the using up of the resources, the, 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 the finite resources of the planet on which we live, um, it, it, it's a, the relationship between a citizen's income and sustainability is a complex one. What nobody knows is if we had a citizen's income, whether we would see more, a more efficient economy that therefore used our resources faster, or whether we would see uh, the citizen's income enabling people to adapt their employment uh, patterns, to do more voluntary work, more part-time work, um, to therefore be able to consume less goods and services that use up resources and more of the kinds of goods and services that do not. A lot more research needs to be done on that issue. Though there are two possibilities that are worth a serious look at. Um, the Green Party in this country quite interestingly and quite rightly says that we can't ask people to take care of the planet uh, if they are poor and don't have enough to live on. It is as simple as that. We, we can only concentrate on one or two major issues at a time. If poverty is at the top of our agenda, then the planet's uh, future healthy survival is going to be further down it. Another uh, issue we do need to look at is, can we marry together social policies that will preserve the planet that we live on uh, and social policies that will tackle poverty. One serious candidate for a social policy that would do that would be a citizen's income paid for by carbon taxes. This is a suggestion that's been made numerous times over the years. It has a lot to recommend it, particularly if it was established on a regional or global basis. Now we're a long way from a global citizen's income at the moment, though it is a feasible possibility as pilot projects in Namibia and India have shown the benefits of a citizen's income that would be felt anywhere in the world where it was established. A, a European citizen's income funded by carbon taxes would have two significant benefits. It would first of all provide a, an income floor across Europe which would match the free market in labour that we have across the European Union and make that much more efficient. Um, we would also, if, fund, if it was funded from carbon taxes, help Europe towards uh, a more sustainable future. This, this particular proposal of marrying a carbon tax, a European carbon tax with the European citizens' income, um, does need really serious discussion and evaluation. 
Now, beyond the practical objections to the idea of a citizen's income, there are, of course, those of an ideological nature. And in the book, you have analysed the political spectrum, uh, certainly the mainstream political spectrum as it exists, more or less in you know modern Western industrial democracies, and from left to right um, across the spectrum. And you've concluded that most of the mainstream uh, can be squared with the concept of a citizen's income. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, uh, it doesn't matter which of the mainstream political ideologies you look at, they not only have arguments been made by exponents of those ideologies for a citizen's income, but it's relatively easy to see why they are able to make arguments for a citizen's income, because the a universal, unconditional, non-withdrawable benefit fits nicely within the, the, the foundations of all of those ideological positions. To take some examples, a, uh, a citizen's income clearly matches the desire for equality espoused by socialism. The One Nation Conservative MPs of the early 1970s put together a very clear case for a citizen's income from within their own particular political ideology and could see the benefits for social cohesion and for free market in labour um, of a citizen's income. For a classical liberal for whom individual freedom is at the top of the agenda, the citizen's income is a must because it, it provides the maximum amount of freedom that any benefit system could possibly provide. From a, a, a new right position, it's, it's perfectly possible to argue for a citizen's income because it would make the labour market much freer as a classical market. It would give people freedom in that market and it would enable people to support their own families much more easily because for every extra pound they earn, they keep a great deal more of it than they keep at the moment. So yes, across the whole of the political spectrum, it's possible to find not only arguments that people have actually made for a citizen's income, um, but roots for those arguments in the very foundations of the, the, those political ideologies. And the details are all in the book. Um, and a, a quite unusual aspect of the book that's going to be published at the end of June is that the appendices are all on a website because there were far too many of them. Um, they were far too long and they just wouldn't fit in the book. And also because some of those appendices are costings exercises that need to be updated regularly. Um, so that's another of the reasons why some of them are in the on the website. Um, the, the, the chapter that's on political ideologies in the book itself is a significantly cut down version of a much larger piece of research that I undertook at the London School of Economics, which which runs through a much wider variety of political ideologies, all of which I find generate arguments for a citizen's income and uh, in, from within which people have generated, have offered those, those arguments. So it's well worth reading the appendices as well as the book itself, if you're interested in that particular subject. People within each of the ideologies have offered arguments against a citizen's income. But what I have discovered as I, as I studied each of those arguments is that they don't relate closely to the ideologies themselves. They are much more generic. That is, the same arguments are, are expressed against a citizen's income. And they're the kinds of arguments that we've already discussed. People won't want to work if they have a citizen's income, and we've answered that one. That is, in fact, they're much more likely to. Uh, you shouldn't pay people something for nothing, but we've answered that one. We're doing that anyway, and we're doing it badly um, so that people don't want to climb out of uh, not earning or not earning very much because it's, it imposes far too many problems on them if they do try to climb out of it. Um, and, and there are other similar generic arguments as well, you'll find them in the book. So the the arguments for a citizen's income belong entirely within the political ideologies. Um, the arguments against are easily answerable, um, which does suggest 
that a citizen's income is politically feasible. Now, it has to be said that this is really, the idea of a citizen's income is more than merely uh, an overhauled benefit scheme. What you're really advocating is a new way of seeing society, a new social contract, if you will, and that in terms of what's possible and what's not possible, perhaps we need to fix our attention uh, for the future on the sort of society we want, rather than meddling and tinkering and trying to fix with what we already have. Uh, I agree. And one of the ways in which the book's arguments are structured is to say that there are two different ways of, uh, of discussing our tax and benefit systems. Either we can ask what kind of society we want, what are we aiming at, and then um, ask what kind of uh, income maintenance system we need. And there's a thought experiment in chapter one of the book to help my readers to get into that way of discussing the issues. Another way is to say, what are the problems facing our current society and our current benefits and tax systems? Um, and then say, well, how do we fix all of that? And uh, it is interesting, it's interesting to me, that you end up at exactly the same position, whichever way round you argue, uh, you end up with a universal system of unconditional, non-withdrawable benefits for each individual citizen. Yes, there are a variety of ways of constructing arguments about our tax and benefits system. One of the, the, the main central section of the book uh, studies a, a list of seven criteria for an ideal tax and benefits system. Um, and that's the heart of the book because it's where, first of all, we are asking, well, what do we want out of the tax and benefit system? And therefore, let's create one that fits those and let's test it against our criteria. It also enables us to test the current system against those criteria and therefore to evaluate which of the two, our current system or a system based on a citizen's income, best meets the criteria society that we want to see. And that's why that's in the heart of the book and quite a lot of space is given to it. Okay, well, Malcolm, the book, uh, just to remind listeners, which is Money for Everyone, Why We Need a Citizen's Income, is available um, widely. Uh, all usual outlets, uh, but perhaps you'd like to share with listeners details of the websites and anything else that you'd like to put out there. Um, the the book you will find already on the Policy Press website, publisher's um, website, www.policypress, all one word, .co.uk. Um, and if you search for the book called Money for Everyone, you'll find it. There's a horrendously expensive hardback, which um, your listeners are unlikely to want unless they're running a library. There's a paperback that will normally be £24.99, but if people order it now, it's £19.99, so a substantial discount. There will also be a Kindle version available when it's when the book's published at the same price as the paperback and various other electronic formats at the more expensive hardback price for, I think they're for libraries, but I don't really understand the details of that. But it's it's all on the, the, the website, um, the Policy Press website. The appendices of the book are all on the Citizens Income Trust's website. That's www.citizensincome, all one word, dot org. And once the book is published on the 27th of June, you will find the appendices on the available on the website wonderful well malcolm thank you very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thank you for having me thanks well folks that's it for another week as ever thank you so much for listening if you enjoy the show please check out the website that's legalizefreedom.com legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including world affairs politics and economics science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>